We're going to continue in our study on a smooth handoff. And you may be asking yourself as we go through this study, what makes Pastor Joe the expert on a smooth handoff? And I'll just tell you right now, the simple answer to that is, I am not. But this book is. Alright, and that's what we're looking at. We're looking at Scripture. How we can have a smooth handoff or strategically, diligently, and thoroughly, thoroughly passing the baton of Christianity to the next generation. Uh, before we get into this, as you remember from last week, uh, Sunday morning we discussed some of the roles of training the next generation. We talked about teaching what that meant. And then Sunday night we started to look at some of the truths that we're to be teaching them. One of the first things I want to tell you is as we look at this topic, um, three services doesn't do it justice, right? Um, And so we are just highlighting uh, some of the truths that are very crucial to our day and age, um, and also that, um, as Paul talks to Timothy, as we're going to look here in a second, highlighting some of the things that he says. But the, the study could go much deeper, and we could talk about many other timeless truths. Uh, that we might not be mentioning, all right? But we're going to try to wrap up this morning um, this study, and I think, um, I hope along with me, you guys will be um, praying and see how the Lord would use you to minister to the next generation. I wonder how many of you, since last week, whether a parent, a lay man or woman in the church, or pastor, since last week, have taken steps to train the next generation, whether that's by words or by example, or by experience. I wonder how many of you have actually taken steps to instill in them sound doctrine. Remember, we looked at that last week. Or sound biblical teaching. A pure heart's purity, and the necessity of prayer. How many of you have taken steps to train the next generation just this past week in those simple truths? What is the mark of a church, or maybe you could even say school, that is having success with the next generation. I want you to think about that for a second because today, many youth pastors or even school teachers would say it would be numbers, right? Um, Having a big youth group, bringing in young people in, having a lot of kids in our Christian school, whatever it might be, and some people would measure the success that way, right? Uh, Some youth pastors might measure the success of a successful teen group by the activities, right? Um, How great the activities are and how many people come out to those. But as I've studied this, I think the mark of a successful church or school or whatever you want to call it that is training the next generation, when you look at success, really you can't focus on the here and now. And what I mean by that is the mark of success when it comes to the next generation is to look what they are doing when they're out on their own. The mark of a successful church that is training up the next generation is to look at that next generation When they have a family someday, when they have a wife or husband someday and children someday, and to see if they are truly in love with Jesus Christ and serving Him in a local church. That is what successfully training the next generation looks like. And that's how you measure success if you wanted to measure success. What what percentage of the next generation is the Church of Eagle Heights Baptist Church training to serve God on their own someday? To be involved in the local church to serve God in their marriage or their families, whatever it might be. That is how we measure success. But for that to happen, it takes work, right? 
from parents, from pastors, from laymen and women in the church who teach relationally by speaking, living, and giving experience. To teach the next generation to know, to love, and to serve God. We teach them sound doctrine. We teach them pure hearts. The necessity of prayer. We looked at those last Sunday night. Parents, the measure of success parent, of parenting is not which child earns the most money someday or has the biggest family or the longest marriage, but rather are your children knowing, loving, and serving God in the occupation they have or the marriage or family or church they're involved in. And I'm not saying today that each one of us don't have a free will and each child and teenager doesn't have a free will, but are we doing our part in training towards that end? I hope you realize that in this study, um, we're going to be looking at some highlights, but not necessarily all of the truths. Now, as we start this morning, I need to tell you a little bit about my background um, when it comes to youth ministry, all right? Um, This study really started to become real to me about four years ago. Um, I was a freshman in college, and I felt the Lord um, leading and directing me as a senior in high school to be a head pastor someday. And that was my desire, and that's what the desire the Lord was putting in my life. And I was like, I'm going to go to college to take that next step into training for that, because I felt um, very confidently that's the way the Lord was directing me. But if you were to ask me four years ago if I thought I would get to that end via a youth pastor, I would have stood right in front of you and said, absolutely not. Because four years ago, I was convinced that the road the Lord was going to take me was probably through evangelism. I was going to be an evangelist. I was going to travel the country. um, And I was going to not deal with the people part of it. Not that evangelists don't, right? Not saying that. But that's what I was convinced of. The Lord was going to bring me to a head pastor someday via evangelism. I'm not sure if uh, my wife will remember this, but early on when we were dating, I would have conversations with her about that. I would say, we're going to be traveling in evangelists someday. And we're going to have a camper. We're going to be traveling around the country. I know it's not the most ideal life, but that is where I am headed. But now I'm here today, and I'm a youth pastor. So the Lord started to change my heart four years ago when my girlfriend and I decided that we wanted to go to the same church at college and serve the Lord today in the same, uh, that, that year in the same local church. Uh, for a couple reasons, we wanted to see how compatible we were in ministry. We were both called to full-time ministry, but also so that on Sundays we could see each other instead of her going two hours this way and me going an hour that way, whatever it might be. And so we decided over the summer, let's look for a church for us both to go serve. And the Lord started to change my heart my freshman year of college as he directed us to a small town in Wisconsin called Utica. And you could drive through it in 25 seconds. Um, and there was a man there named Pastor Ron Coots. And before even really meeting me, um, we had many phone calls I wasn't able to travel up there through the summer, but he said, why don't you come visit us? We visited the church, and I think second or third week, he plugged us into the teen group. Um, And I was fine with that because it gave me an opportunity to preach. That's what I loved doing. I loved to preach. And so I was like, all right, this is good. And I remember he scheduled the first time I was going to preach to the teens. It was going to be on a Wednesday night. And I studied for like three weeks. I was like, I am going to have the perfect 
message for these teenagers. Um, and I was convinced in my mind, I had studied, um, I was prepared for this sermon, and the week came, the night came, we did a game with the teens, and it came time for me to preach, and I was convinced that I was going to turn these teenagers' lives around by my sermon. I was going to set them straight. That's, that's what, that was my thinking. And I got up there, and I felt like I delivered one of the most powerful messages that I had delivered to my point. Uh, to to the point of life I was at at that time. I really felt that way. But instead of all of the teenagers flocking to me and talking to me after that message, the opposite was starting to become true. They were kind of staying away from me. They didn't want to open up to me. And I realized as weeks gone on that the truth I was speaking from the pulpit really wasn't resonating in their lives either. And the Lord started to teach me something. That pastoring, whether it's a youth pastor um, or a head pastor, or parenting, when we're trying to parent with truth, vital to though that, that truth's ministry, or what I would call pulpit ministry, is people ministry. Because if you don't have people ministry as a pastor, or a parent, or a lay man or woman in the church, it's not going to support the truth ministry. It's called a relationship. It's building a relationship. So I had to learn my freshman year of college that while it was a vital part of the ministry as a youth pastor to preach truth from the pulpit, to go along with that in order for the pulpit ministry to have effect, I needed to start showing the teens that I cared about them, that I was invested in their life, that I loved them. And then eventually, about a year later, a year and a half or so later, we started to see teens open up. We started to see teens ask us questions, come to us with sins that they had been struggling with or whatever it might be. And yes, the pulpit ministry was a huge part of that, but even bigger than that was the people ministry. And so as we look at training the next generation, we're talking about truth. We have to train in truth. We have to train in biblical truth. That's what we're looking at. But to support that, we have to care about the next generation. We have to love the next generation. Right? Because if we think that training the next generation, we're going to have a smooth handoff if we just preach and preach and preach to the next generation, I, the Lord can definitely do a work with that, but how much more can He do when we are relational with the next generation as well? So as we look at this, that is, what, that is the angle that we need to come from. So what I mean by that is parents and pastors, men and women, we can preach and teach the truth of God's Word until we are blue in the face, but to be as effective as it can be with truth, people have to know that you care. It's just how people are wired today. So today we will wrap up our discussion by looking at a few more things that Paul is training young Timothy with. And so, just like last Sunday night, I'll tell you again, why are we looking at the book of 1 Timothy when we're talking about training the next generation when it has to do with a pastor? Well, the reason is this. First off, it's an older Christian training a younger Christian. And secondly, because while there are many truths for a pastor in the book of 1 Timothy, they are not specific to a pastor either. That means that we can look outside of the book of 1 Timothy, and we will, to see how some of the very things that a pastor is told to do are what Christians are commanded to do as well. So that's why we're looking at the book of 1 Timothy, and we're actually going to look a little bit at 2 Timothy as well this morning. 
So before we get into our timeless truths for today, let's do a, a little bit of review. We're saying that necessary to our gospel ministry is an investment in the gospel ministry that will come after ours. That's ministering and training the next generation, right? We looked at Deuteronomy 6. Where in the Old Testament, God is telling the people of Israel to teach the next generation to love the Lord with all of their being. To teach them the truths that He listed before in the previous chapters. To teach them by words, by living, and by experience. We looked at how it's all of our responsibility in training the next generation. Parents, while it's all of our responsibility, we all play a different role in training the next generation. And I am convinced that when we stand before the Lord someday, that it's not necessarily going to be the pastors or laymen and women in the church that are going to give an account for how a child was raised, but parents. You have a crucial role in training the next generation. Why is it vital? Because the ministry of Christ is dependent on it. This isn't something that we should take lightly. This isn't something that we should be hands-off as parents in training the next generation, but very strategic about very diligent about and very thorough about as well if we're going to have a smooth handoff. Also, pastors. We looked at how they have a responsibility. We have a responsibility in training the next generation with truth, being personal about it, um, and caring. But also, laymen and laywomen in the church as well. Paul talks about that several times in Titus and Acts. And even the Old Testament talks about outside teachers training the next generation. We all have a role. And for it to be as, as effective as possible, for the, the handoff of Christianity to be passed off as smoothly as possible, we need all three parties working together. One of the worst things that can happen are parents who are training the next generation in biblical truth but aren't backed up by the church, by pastors or laymen and women. And vice versa as well, when pastors and the church is training in truth, but it's not backed up at home with the parents training in truth to know, love, and to serve God. It's all of our responsibility, and it's a serious responsibility, one that no, no one should take lightly. Then we looked at lessons taught over a lifetime but sometimes ruined in single moments. We looked at how we teach. The obvious one is by speaking, right? We have to use words to teach. And that applies differently to the different roles, right? Pastors have a speaking ministry from the pulpit. Obviously, it goes farther than that, but that is a main part of their ministry. Parents have opportunities to speak truth into the lives of their children that no one else will have opportunities to. It's the car rides, um, it's the dinner table, whatever it might be. And laymen and women in the church, we talked about maybe for, for you, it's just talking to the next generation and starting to get to know them and where they are struggling, whatever it might be. And so speaking is a vital part of teaching, but also living by example, right? You're being watched. The next generation is watching the church. They're watching their parents. They're watching their pastors. They're watching the adults in Eagle Heights Baptist Church. So what are we teaching them by our life, by our example? Parents, what are we teaching them by the things that we allow in the home? Whether it's video, whether 
whether it's um, listening to something, whatever it might be, what are we teaching them? We're teaching them something. Pastors, what are we teaching them by our lifestyle? Are we just preaching truth? Or are we backing it up with our lifestyle? And laymen and women in the church, what are you teaching the next generation to know, love, and serve God by the way that you're living your life? Speaking and living are ways that we teach the next generation, but also just simply by experience. In the last week, parents, how have you taught your children by experience, getting them involved in the ministry of Christ? Passing out tracts, ministering somewhere, going on visitation, whatever it might be, bringing them to church. How are you teaching them with experience? That's how we teach. We teach relationally, right? Letting them know that we care. And then last Sunday night, we started on these teaching timeless truths. Now, very simply put, we are trying to teach the next generation to know, to love, and to serve God. That's what we're teaching them. But we're looking deeper into what what truths entail and serving and loving and knowing God, right? But simply put, to know God, first off, as personal Lord and Savior. That's part of knowing God. But then it's also a perpetual understanding of who He is. What that means is a continual understanding, a daily understanding of who God is, understanding Him more, understanding Him better, to know God. We need to teach the next generation to know God. To love God. With all of your being. That's what Deuteronomy is saying when it says, Teach it unto your children to love God and to serve God with everything you have, with your actions, with your thoughts, with your decisions, whatever it is, to serve God. So, whatever role you find yourself in this morning, whether it's a parent, a pastor, a lay man or woman in church, we are to be teaching and training the next generation to know to love, and to serve God. But if you are the next generation today, teenagers or children today, the truths that we are talking about are the truths that you should be pursuing. Because as we talk about this, it's a twofold responsibility. Yes, the the adults, the pastors, the parents, the men and women of Eagle Heights are to be training. But teenagers are to be clinging to instruction that is based on truth. And we looked at that last Sunday morning in Sunday school. And so it's a twofold responsibility. But so as we go through these timeless truths, teenagers, you need to be thinking these are the truths that I need to cling to. These are the truths that I need to pursue. And adults in the church, these would be the truths that we should be living by so that we can train the next generation. So we looked at three last week. First one is the importance of sound doctrine. Biblical truth, biblical teaching is what that means. We're to be teaching the next generation biblical teaching. Remember how we teach? It's by our words, by our example. Almost everything around the next generation today is teaching them. So how are we teaching them sound doctrine? Is sound doctrine being taught in the things that we allow them to participate in? Parents, we allow them to watch. By our words, are we teaching sound doctrine? The importance of a pure heart before God. That when you live your life, teenager, next generation, it's not to be acceptable before your pastors, your teachers, or your parents, but it's that when God looks at every area of your life, also the necessity of prayer. So how are we teaching the next generation the necessity of prayer, whether it's a parent or a pastor 
Is it true in your homes that you have prayer? So we're going to look at some more timeless truths this morning. The first one being the significance of distinction and modesty. This morning, as, as I studied for this, it's hard to realize that we live in a world where we even have to deal with this topic. But we do. And the next generation is faced with it almost daily. Whether it's gender distinction or modesty. In 1 Timothy, look at chapter 2. Paul deals with this in, uh, to Timothy, starting in verse 8. He says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, again, the importance of necessity of prayer, right? And like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. You know, the word distinction means a difference or a contrast, right? Many of you have met my younger brother because he interned here, uh, Mr. Tom, as he's known to the teens. And if there was anything in my life that I would say would be a distinction or a difference, it would be me and my younger brother. Uh, even growing up, all right, we are complete opposites. Um, he is tall, and I am short. He is very lively and energetic and talkative. I am more reserved. And so as we grew up, we were complete opposites. We, we were best friends because of it, I think. Um, but we were complete opposites. Um, there was a difference. There was a distinction between the two. Have you ever played one of those games where it's almost like an I Spy game where you're given the original picture and then you're given another picture where you have to circle the differences, right? Um, this is a horrible example, but last year uh, we were teaching in a Christian school and I was doing a study hall and there was a junior high boy that consistently um, just wasn't behaving and not necessarily in major sin issues, but just couldn't stop himself from talking, couldn't keep himself busy. And so he was done with his homework, and so one day I gave him two identical pictures and said, find the differences in, in this picture. And I let him go for like five minutes, and I felt kind of bad about it, so finally I told him, hey, they're the same. He was coming up with all these differences. I was like, no, man, they're the same. They're the same pictures, okay? Um, but there is a distinction that God has made between genders. Personality, physically, whatever you want to call it, scientifically, there is a distinction. And we need to teach the next generation that distinction of the role of men and women in society, in church, in the family, whatever it might be. So as we look at this passage, I think we have to realize how much this is under attack today. You may say this, we live in a world where most, if not every young person, will begin to realize and be approached with gender distinction and modesty uh, if they, soon if they haven't already. It's unfortunate, but true. Gender roles and distinction are being twisted and distorted all around us. It is finding its way into our homes, even by the movies and shows that we watch. You know that some of the most popular shows today amongst 
Christians are in the background praising homosexuals, along with many other things. But it's, it's teaching the next generation what we allow them to see. We have to teach the next generation the distinction and the roles of men and women. It's teaching our kids even the things that they watch, the things that they see, that immodesty is the sign of beauty. That's what the world is teaching the next generation. Since when do we let the world define beauty? The world will tell ladies or teen girls today that the mark of beauty is to reveal more, to be immodest. While God uses the terms modest, shamefacedness, and sobriety to explain true beauty. Young ladies, if you know what God calls beautiful? He says the word modest here, which actually means well-ordered or what is appropriate. That's again the distinction mark. All right, That's what the word modest is. It's not manly apparel is what modest there means. You see the word, the word modesty here is a distinction word in the Greek that is used to make a distinction between men's apparel and women's apparel. That's what God says beautiful. It's, mo- it's appropriate for a woman. And then he uses the word, that is why Paul goes on to give a short list as well as to what not to and what to. Then he uses the word shamefacedness and sobriety. Those are the words that we get modesty from today. Shamefacedness means with modesty of apparel and appearance and manner, an eminent female virtue. Sobriety means well-balanced state of mind arising from a habitual self-restraint. That is what God calls beautiful. That is the mark of a woman of godliness, is what this passage says. He says, with shamefacedness and sobriety, these are the two general rules by which to dress. Dress is to be regulated, is what Paul is saying here. It is right and proper when it, cons- when it is consistent with chastity, when it is n- not immodest and impudent, and more like the attire of what Paul would say in chapter 1 of a harlot. And when it is moderate as well as modest and suitable to the person. What are we teaching the next generation about modesty and distinction? Parents, what are you teaching them by what you allow them to watch? About beauty and distinction. What are you teaching them from your own example, men and women of Eagle Heights Baptist Church, about distinction and modesty? What are pastors and pastors' wives teaching the next generation? Paul tells Timothy in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that the opposite of modesty and proper distinction is not sound doctrine, are the words he used. I think we've already talked about a timeless truth about sound doctrine. Paul is saying it's the opposite. In modesty, um, and he says, and he talks about homosexuality being the opposite of sound doctrine. So what are we teaching the next generations about the significance of distinction and modesty? Another timeless truth that I see is the role and the supremacy of the local church. We're to teach the next generation to love the local church. Remember last week we talked about Generation Z. And what people are saying about the next generation is that it's post-Christian. That is what the term is used for Generation Z. That means with really no religion is what it's talking about. What are we teaching them about the local church of Jesus Christ? 
Paul says this in chapter 3 and verse 15, and we, we skipped some of the, the book of 1 Timothy there. That's the role of the pastor. And there are several things in there that are true for Christians as well, but we're highlighting some things here. In verse 15 he says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Matthew 8, 20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And Colossians three sixteen says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's talking about the church there. Paul is talking to the church. You know what is becoming more and more common, even though it's kind of going under the radar today, is what, they, what they're calling virtual church. That you can attend church from home, right? You can listen, watch the sermons online. That is not New Testament. That is not Christ-centered, grounded in truth, church. We're going to be teaching the next generation to love Christ's church. The imagery here is changed as Paul is talking. In the house of God, which the apostle had just defined to be the church or the congregation belonging to the living God, and in the midst of which he was pleased to dwell, right? he's talking about the local church here, is now defined at the end of this verse in 15 as the pillar and ground or the basis of truth. In the first picture, the church is painted by Paul as a congregation with the living God dwelling in the midst. And therefore, it is the basis or the foundation of truth. You know, God has instituted the church, the local church, to be an instrument to not just attend, but to get involved in. What type of picture are we giving the next generation about church? The church has a specific and vitally important role of the ministry of Christ today. When I think of an important role, I think of when I was in fifth grade, and my small Christian school decided that we were going to do a reader's theater, but we didn't have enough in the secondary to do all the parts for a reader's theater. Um, it was a, I think it was a passage of scripture, so a, a playoff of a passage of scripture, and so a reader's theater is not necessarily acting, but you are speaking, and different people have different parts, and I was a fifth grader, and I was asked as a fifth grader to join the secondary students in this reader's theater, and I thought, it was um, pretty cool until I got my one short line, right? And the teachers consistently tried to encourage me that my one short line was a vitally important role to the Reader's Theater. And I still remember the line today. It was, that is what God said. And I remember, I'm serious, I remember for about four months going home and practicing that one line, saying it different ways, that is what God said. That is what God said. And I would say it different ways. And there's more to a reader's theater than just memorizing your line. It's also memorizing when you have to come in, right? So coming in at the right time. And so for four months as they are preparing this reader's theater, I am at home. My older siblings have much longer parts. And we would rehearse together. And I would be sitting there as a fifth grader being like, I have to get this right. I have to get this right. Thinking to myself. And as the reader's theater would progress. And then finally it would come to my point. That is what God said. And I would be like, okay, that was pretty good that time. Let's work on it more. 
Um, but the teachers would try to convince me that I had a vitally important role in this reader city. They were doing that so that I would put in the work. I wouldn't come in too soon. Well, unfortunately, I wasn't convinced that I had a vitally important role. And I didn't work on it hard enough. Because while I had how to say it down pretty well, the time came to perform it in front of all of the parents. And I said that line three times in the Reader's Theater at three different times. I came in too soon the first time. I think I came in close to where I was supposed to the second time. And I still didn't know. So then I came in another time later on. Um, So I was not convinced of my vitally important role in the Reader's Theater. But to the ministry of Christ, the local church has a vital role in the ministry of Christ. We need to be teaching the next generation the importance of the local church. There's so much that it entails. It's the basis of truth, yes, but it's where we exhort and encourage believers. We talked about statistics last week. Did you know in fundamental Christian circles, it said that over 50% of teenagers that grow up in a fundamental Christian home will not be in church after they're on their own. Over 50%. And a lot of studies even have more than that. What are we teaching the next generation about the local church? The teenagers of Eagle Heights Baptist Church should be excited about Sunday and Wednesday nights, and everything in between, about the ministry of Christ with the group of believers here. The way that they see us worship as adults, the way that they see us encourage each other as adults, deal with each other's hardships, either sins, whatever it might be, it should be attractive to them. We should be teaching the next generation that church is a joy to get involved in, not just be a passive member of. What are we teaching the next generation, parents, about church when we allow our children to dictate when they want to come to church? What are we teaching the next generation, men and women in the church, when we decide it's okay for us not to attend? And what are we teaching them as pastors or people in leadership when we say it's okay Um, to get rid of Sunday night services or whatever it might be. We're teaching the next generation that the assembly of God is not as important as it actually is. Paul tells Timothy to train the next generation to make sure he himself knew the role and the importance of the local church. We have to teach the next generation that, and the biggest way we can do that is by living it ourselves. Another timeless truth as we go through here is the need for steadfastness. He says this in chapter 4 and verse 12. If you look down there, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of believers in word and conversation in charity and spirit and faith in purity. As we look at this, there are several things that Paul tells Timothy in the book of Timothy to be steadfast, to be faithful in. And all throughout Scripture, we see the same thing. Um, you, could, you could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Hey, that's the local church. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, he says, And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. That's steadfastness. That's faithfulness. Steadfastness means endurance 
or faithfulness. And by its very definition, it has to do with a period of time. It's over time. Are you steadfast in faith over the course of your life? When different circumstances come your way, are you steadfast? When you think of the word steadfast, you almost think of a race, right? Which is what we're talking about, enduring to the end. In our case, it should be enduring until the end of our life here on earth. It's steadfastness. When I think of steadfastness or enduring until the end of something, I'm reminded of uh, one time I was privileged to play basketball at our Christian school for several years. And I remember being a ninth grader playing basketball. And we were small enough Christian school that a ninth grader could play either way. They could play junior high or they could play on the varsity team. Now, we were so small that we really needed us ninth graders to play on the varsity team. Um, and so when you are in conference play um, or playing another team in your conference, they have rules of how many quarters you can play. And I remember my dad was the coach, and he would always try to get out of that rule. Every game there was a junior high and varsity game, he would ask them if we could get rid of the six-quarter rule and we could just play our players without many quarters, and he would say we don't have enough players. Um, and so many times that was possible, that was the case. Many times it was not. But this one time we were playing Tri-City. And yes, everybody wants to beat Tri-City back in the day, right? And so we're playing Tri-City at home. There was a junior high game and a varsity game. My dad got it approved by the refs and the other coach to play me and one of my buddies who were a ninth grader. The full junior high game and the full varsity game. And so the junior high game was very close, the entire game. Um, and it was back and forth, and so much so to the point where it went into overtime. And so I'm a ninth grader. I played four quarters, and then I played overtime. Finally, overtime got over. We were able to win the game. And then we started the varsity game 15 minutes after. And so I'm a junior high, ninth grade boy, and I get in the varsity game, and I'm still not that tired. I'm still like, I can do this. Well, then the varsity game went into overtime. And so I ended up playing close to 10 quarters that night instead of 8. But I remember at the end of the game, we were down by 4 points against Tri-City. And there was about 2 minutes left in the game. And I was beginning to, to feel some fatigue. And it went down to about a minute. I got the ball on the 3-point line. I put up a shot. I felt like I got fouled, but we're not going to argue that today. Right? <laughs> um, and I put up the shot, and it went in. But when I landed, so we were within one point with about 50 seconds left to go, but when I landed, my body was really feeling the fatigue that my brain did not want to um, admit to, and I started to cramp in my calf. And it was, I had never experienced, I was a ninth grade boy, I was like, what is going on? This is horrible pain in my calf, I can't walk on it. Um, and so I remember that the game stopped. Our trainer came over and started to stretch my calf a little bit, and it was still just so tight that I couldn't even really walk. I had to be uh, helped off the court. But I remember in the timeout, pleading with my dad, put me back in the game. It's a one-point game. There's 50 seconds left. I'll just stand at the three-point line. I won't walk, and you can pass me the ball. And I remember pleading. I was like, Dad, I want to finish the game. Um, he didn't allow me to. Uh, I had to sit back and watch as my younger brother actually made the game-winning shot, and that was pretty fun. Um, and so, but I was not able to finish the game. I remember as a ninth-grade boy, I was like, this is an awful feeling. My team is down by one. 
I wanted to endure that pain through the end of the game. And then after the game, my mom could worry about me all she wanted to, right? But that's what enduring is. That is what steadfastness is. We're to teach the next generation the importance of serving Christ throughout your life, with your entire life, throughout the whole course of your life. That's what we're to teach the next generation. I don't care how old I am. I don't care for the circum- about the circumstances that I am in. It will not get in the way of my service and devotion to Jesus Christ. Hey, parents, when your family has a difficult circumstance, are your children seeing you cleave to your God and your Creator? Grandparents today, are your grandchildren seeing you continue to be devoted and serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Are they seeing that steadfastness? Are they seeing worry and trying to fix things on your own in the adults' lives in the church? Whatever it might be, we're to be teaching the next generation that serving God is not just for adults. It's not just for 20 to 45 years old. It's for every Christian from the moment they get saved until Christ calls them home. We're to be serving. We're to be devoted to God. We're to teach the next generation that. It's not just something that they start when they're an adult. When they have a family, I'm going to start taking Christ seriously. We're to be teaching the next generation that steadfastness is as early as possible until the end. That is how we are to serve Christ. The need for steadfastness. And then finally, the final truth I want to highlight. It's kind of two truths that we see here in the book of 1 Timothy. The responsibility of laboring in the Word of God. We see that in chapter 5. We also see it in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, right? This book of the law shall not depart out of my mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Romans ten seventeen. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Psalm 119, 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. See, we're to be teaching the next generation that life will not work without the word of God. Without the word of God leading their path. Showing them what to do. We have to be living that ourselves. The second part of that truth is that the resource of Scripture in a day of apostasy. We see that in 2 Timothy I can't tell you enough the importance of the Word of God in our specific day and age. You know what we spend time with and meditate on is what is going to impact our actions and our decisions the most. I remember as an elementary boy, my dad would read us boys books called The Sugar Creek Gang. And they were Christian detective books almost. And he would read us a chapter every night. And I remember as an elementary boy, those had an impact on me. So when I was done with school every day, guess what? We were outside playing. The Sugar Creek Gang. And we were detectives. And me and my family were trying to solve a mystery or whatever it might be. You see, what you spend time with, what you allow to go in your eye gate, your ear gate, that affects your mind and your heart, is what is going to impact your actions and how you live your life. So what are we teaching the next generation to spend time with? You could put it this way. If a teenager or an adult spends three hours watching a television show 
and 30 minutes that morning spending time in the Word of God, which is going to have the most effect? We have to be teaching the next generation the importance of the Word of God. It's a meditation. That's why we have Scripture memory here. It's meditating on the truths and the principles, that sound doctrine that God has given us. And it is so important in our day and age. That word apostasy, if you don't know what it means, it means going away from religion. All right, There's no religion in it. And that's the day and age we live in. Everything around the next generation, almost everything, is pointing to the opposite of sound doctrine, the opposite of sound biblical truths. We need to be teaching them with our words, with our living, the importance of studying the Word of God and the importance that Scripture has in our worldview, how we look at the world. Because it's all within sight of God's Word. I want to emphasize the roles as we conclude today of parents, pastors, and the adults in church. We have an important role. To make this handoff to the next generation of Christianity, of the work of Christ smooth, everybody needs to pitch in in this responsibility of strategically and diligently and thoroughly training the next generation. We do it with care. We do it relationally, but we all have to take part. And whatever role you find yourself in, let me encourage you this morning to take it seriously. The next generation of Eagle Heights Baptist Church needs the adults of Eagle Heights Baptist Church training and being living examples to know, to love, and to serve God. What timeless truths are you teaching the next generation in whatever role you're in? There's several we could talk about. What steps are you taking to train the next generation with your words, with your living, maybe it's experience? It's important. We have to do it strategically. We have to do it diligently. And we have to do it thoroughly. There's no time to stop. And we definitely shouldn't stop now. Let's train the next generation the best we can to put them in a spot where all they have to do is receive the instruction of truth to see God use their life as well. Let's pray.